This is Coda Radio, episode 361, for June 10th, 2019. Welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show that takes a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and related technologies. My name is Wes, and I'm extra special pleased to be joined by Mr. Michael Dominic today. He had to survive a thunderstorm and worse, an internet outage. But nevertheless, you're here, Mike. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for being patient, Wes. And I am here, older, wiser, and more educated. Did you know that Fios Verizon boxes have batteries in them? Oh, no. You know, I've never really dug in too deep to know how those things work on the inside. Well, I have had one for only five years now. And uh, I guess my battery's dead. So when the power went out because of a thunderstorm, I had no interwebs. No interwebs. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty rough when you're trying to do a live streamed uh, internet podcast, right? Yeah, and it's bad for Coder Radio too. I mean, my whole webcam thing was fine because I pre-recorded it. Oh, you're not talking about that. Uh oh, no, no, I'm not. So before we get feedback about that, which you can do by the way, by to go into coder dot show slash contact, find all the great ways to get in touch with us. Let's get to some feedback we already have from our friend Lance. Now, Lance has a bit of a FOSS quandary. He writes, I was working on an open source project for school that we, meaning four members, submitted. Now, as often happens, myself and one other person did about 98% of the work, and the others contributed to the documentation, which incidentally was kept outside the code base. Class is over now for many months, and no one has touched the code except for the other member who did most of the work. And, and really, we both want to keep this stuff going. Do we downgrade the other two non-contributors from owner to contributor and take over maintaining the project, but give them initial project credit? Do we shoot them an email and inform them of our plans and the, with you know all the risk of confrontation, them saying no or, or wanting to fight about it? For a little context here, one member felt slighted by the direction the project took, so there's already a little drama. Maybe we should just fork it, you know? There would be some confusion because there's already like 15-some users using the snap that we're publishing. Any insight appreciated? Lance. I'm going to go first because I think I'm going to have a much less nuanced and nice approach to this. Oh, yeah. Lay lay down, Mr. Dominic. Fork it to the ground, man. 15 snap users. I mean, I get that is pretty good for just, you know, random FOSS project. But I have never seen a case where contributors got into a... um, shall we say, Rochambeau contest that ended well for the project as a whole. Just fork it, do your own thing. Um, I'm thinking particularly of, what was it? What, what is the fork of Ionic? Was, is it Laria? Or, um, I'm forgetting the name, but yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's something like that. Yeah. And like the answer is when the contributors don't agree, you fork. And frankly, you should have information on the people that you're using your project, I hope. You're saying there's 15, so you must know something. Um just be very, very loud about it, right? Write it right into podcasts that cover this stuff. Um, post something on a website for the Forked Project on the GitHub. 
and, and link back to the original project and say it's a fork and very nicely and professionally say it's forked, not, not for personal conflicts, never say stuff like that, but say like it's forked because I have no idea what your project is, but say it's forked. You know, there was some technical disagreement on how to do something, which I'm getting the feeling is kind of what happened anyway. So Wes, you know, uh, actually I think I, I completely agree. It's, it's early enough in the project that you can just fork it, and and you're just not going to have the same kind of complaints, right? Totally fair. The, as long as the license allows you to do that, which sounds like it does, why not keep it simpler? And then you won't have, they have no claims of governance, right? This is a brand new thing, your own fork, and you can set things up from the get-go, and assuming you're looking to look, work on this project for, you know, some time to come, after a while, all this nonsense will fade away into the distance of time. So, I think you're spot on, Mike. And it's one of the nice things that you can do when you play in the open source space, right? You don't have to stick to existing governance structures or agreements or models. Like as long as you respect the licenses, have at it, run it your way. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're, you're much freer to do as you wish. All right. So uh, next up in our feedback segment, Mike, you're pointing us at just a little bit of Mac pro trolling. Now we did talk a little bit about the Mac pro because while well, we were both salivating and acknowledging we're probably never buying one of these things. Yeah, my uh, my banker says I can't have a mortgage to buy a Mac Pro. So the uh, the subreddit was kind enough to show us all the things we could buy instead. It's a pretty long list, Russ. It's a uh, yeah. It's it's not a not a conservative list at all. Yeah, right. Things like a Galaxy S10, a Pixel 3a, maybe an iPhone XR, a Mac Mini for, you know, building and testing all these applications. Plus, you're going to need a mobile development Ultrabook, so pick up like an XPS 13 or a Lenovo X1, maybe buy a nice 27-inch 4K monitor, and uh, a Windows PC for, you know, gaming or machine learning or whatever. You can buy all those things. Or buy the base-level Mac Pro. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's pretty clear to me that the uh, the Mac Pro is just not meant for developers. Certainly, if you're a guy named Marco, you could definitely buy one, and because you're rich. Um, but yeah, you you don't need this, right? Like, no one needs this. Well, maybe yeah. All right, you're right. With the word need, no one needs this. Yeah, that, that's true. Right, and when I say no one, I mean developers, right? Like, if you are literally working on the next Marvel movie, yes, you probably do need this, but. Um, Right. No, absolutely. If you if you want this and you have the money, you know, grate that cheese, man. Grate it. Grate it with all your fury, your might, your love. Be like Sauron. Pour everything into the cheese. That's um that's some special advice you've got there, Mr. Dominic. But I think you're right about that. Let's move right along because there's there's more fallout from uh, WWDC, even though we're you know we're a week on now. One thing you pointed out, there will be a change in the default shell in the next version of macOS. That's right. Uh, the born-again shell is banished. No more. No more. In, in the land of Catalina, there will be no born-again shell. It is now Z-shell. So, yay. Um, and when I say yay, I mean, I hate change. Yeah, I am curious about how you actually feel about this because I mean, I don't, I don't have a lot of Macs in my life. I have used uh, ZSH before, and I think it's a, a fine shell environment, but it is probably it's a weird change to make, and it's not going to be completely smooth. Well, I have a few thoughts on this, right? But for a baseline for our non-Mac users in the audience, the bash on Mac currently is an old version of bash anyway. 
So one thing that Linux switcher switchers will find is that holy crap, Bash is so much better on Ubuntu or you know insert distro here. That has nothing to do with Mac and everything to do with the fact that Apple packages an old version of Batch. Um, and that it has everything to do with the GPL3, I believe, which Apple does not like. Right. So they're basically packaging the newest version of Bash they could that was still on the GPL2, right? Right. Um, and hence, you have this ancient version of Bash. And it turns out Bash has kept getting better, actually. Yes. It turns out the open source community like keeps improving. Uh, so Z Shell is, an, is, is probably a smart choice, although kind of disappointing in my mind. Um, you know, Z Shell is more or less one-to-one command similar to Bash. There is a, unless you are a like deep command line user on Mac, you're probably not going to notice. Um, if you administer a lot of Linux servers that have Bash, then there might be edge cases, but realistically, your your average development user working on a Mac is probably never going to notice the difference. I actually wish they, if they were going to do this, they had just gone with like fish, fish shell or F shell. Um, you know, if you're going to change it and if you're going to cause that disruption, which again, for most people probably isn't that much of a disruption and is why they went with Z shell. I would have loved a, a, just a more modern, like really much more modern shell. Z shells kind of, you know, it's not bad. I don't mean to, to, to disparage Z shell, but it's, it's a pretty conservative choice. If you were going away from bash, you could have, again, I like F shell or fish shell, whatever you want to call it. But yeah. No, I mean, I, I do find myself when switching shells, usually on fish. But is there something to be said about trying? Like, they didn't have a lot of options. They're seemingly totally unwilling to ship the GPL3 binaries. Fish is, I mean, they've, the, some of the more recent versions actually have been making some, you know, like they've added support. So it's like the and operator and or operators are more similar. So they have been making some strides to being more bash compliant. But Fish is upfront about not being bash compliant. ZSH also has some of their own stuff, right? So, I mean, I don't know that you could convert a script um, if you're using some complicated stuff, but probably command line will just be nicer. Advantages to fish, on the other hand, of course, you don't have to configure it, right? Um, We'll have links to a bunch of different ZSH ZSH resources in the show notes over at coder.show slash 361. There's a whole bunch of different configuration guides and tool sets and plugins and options for making ZSH, making ZSH shine. Fish, I never find myself really doing that because I only need to tweak a few settings and get going. I don't have a good sense, though, like of the Mac developer community, people who actually use shells on Mac OS. How many of them are like really familiar with it and want customization or care at all? And how many of them just won't notice at all? I mean, my experience has been not much right like i I honestly i think this is the biggest non-story of wwdc except for a few small maybe not small but a few hardcore like devops docker developers or developers using docker not the developers of docker of course who are running mac os and like they're going to get hit with their giant bash scripts that are edge cases going from bash to seashell Right. And you can still, of course, have Bash installed. And if it's not your default shell, you can still, you know, if you've specified and run it with the binary that's Bash, well, that should just still work too. Right. You could, you could act like, I'm sure someone's going to package a Bash in a dot app that you can just run on your Mac if, if it doesn't already exist. Right. So, so you're not freaking out about it. Is, that's what I'm hearing. 
No, I'm a little disappointed, right? Like if you're if you're going to change, I I would have actually liked to see fish, and I know that's my preference. And I'm I'm I did not know you were a fishy, by the way. Mm, yeah, I don't use it on all my machines, and I don't often put it on servers. But um, for my desktop machines, I like it a lot. Well, you know what they say, Wes? Plenty of fishies in the sea. <laughs> that's true. So, one little trolling question here, though. Are you sure they wouldn't have just um, reinvented and made their own shell if they were really going to spend that much time into it? Oh, jeez. Yeah, Swift shell. I can already see it. It's like AppleScript, but in a shell form, somehow merged with the best aspects of PowerShell. Craig Federici, if you're listening, you did not hear that. He's, it's just delete the episode. Don't listen. Do not tempt them. Okay? Just, I'm back on Mac, and I, I, I really don't want it to be non-compliant with POSIX. Like, let's just, like, they're scaring me, Wes. They're scaring me with this T2 crap. And like, I don't know. I, I think the BSD core might be in a little bit of danger. And, but that's my pet theory. Five years, no more BSD on Mac. You heard it here first. Right. You can see them um, just between other things, maybe virtualized environments or other solutions. You're, it's kind of worrisome. Like, How much are they going to keep that legacy intact? And how much are they going to move forward to their own development environments and development kits? Because they have all that stuff. And if you're, you don't need the other stuff if you're just writing for their ecosystem. But it's nice to be able to do both from one machine. Uh, there's an Alice Cooper song about this. Welcome to my nightmare. Let's just leave it there. I think that's well said. So speaking of Swift, since you brought it up, I have to say that I love Swift. Um, I'm suspicious that this isn't the real Michael Dominic. What, what happened? What happened in that thunderstorm? I was struck by a lightning. A Swift bolt redesigned my UI via Swift UI. That was really, really contrived. Okay, well, to make up for it, maybe just um, break down Swift UI a bit, because we didn't really get to talk about it too much on the previous episode. Now you've had some time to look at it, let it soak in, see other people chat about it. What's going on here? Why should I care? So it is a declarative user interface um, language, basically, written in Swift, obviously, for making iOS and macOS UIs. It is very similar to, let's say, a reactive programming model, right? You have components. Um, I think the key are one. The keys are once uh, one. It's bringing iOS development, user interface development, into a more modern development paradigm. So, no more crazy layout constraints. Yay! Oh, right? No more screwing wow. around an interface builder. Yeah. Um, it does not take a lot of code with Swift UI to get a pretty decent standard UI done. Of course, once you start going like super fancy designers handed you Photoshop files, yes, then you know you're going to be doing quite a bit of work. But it's based on a component model. Um, so I've been digging in, Wes. I've been, I, I, you know, what? I've been scooping the ice cream out of the Swift UI tub, and I have two blog posts written converting an Xcode project existing one to Swift UI. And existing components to SwiftUI. So again, that would be like, let's say you have, you know, um, Wes's button, right? Which is a subclass of UI button. Right. So this is some component I've sort of customized, added some neat functionality. Maybe you press it and it, it buys me a sandwich or something great like that. Right. And it has like certain layout properties that you don't want to lose, right? This... Um, is SwiftUI allows this type of custom control to just simply be wrapped in SwiftUI and then use like any other SwiftUI um, class. And it doesn't have to be your thing, right? Like I did something with the Google sign-on button, 
which is a GD sign-on button from the Google SDK. And sure enough, you can just wrap that bad boy in SwiftUI. Oh, see, that sounds pretty nice. But you have something in here about React developers in SwiftUI. Well, I was I was going to ask you about that. I, I saw a couple tutorials floating around, or tutorial is too strong of a word, um, explorations perhaps, uh, and just trying to make some comparisons between how stuff is done with React or React Native and some of the ideas coming in, in SwiftUI, particularly as it goes to maybe more of the declarative um, end. And I'm wondering if, if you noticed that as well. Yeah, you could, you could tell that there was some uh, inspiration from, from React Native, right? And and really just reactive programming as a whole. Um, I, I sort of think, in a way, the similarities, folks coming from, in particular, React Native, the similarities are going to make it easy for them to get started and really sneaky when they're different. So you're worried that people become a little too familiar or think that it's more similar than it really is? Not that word, right? It'll be one of those things where it's just like a bug you're not used to, kind of like memory management was before uh, automatic reference counting, right? Folks who are used to like Java would get screwed up in Objective-C because they'd forget about memory management. But this is, I mean, I, I have to say like uh, the post here is pretty pretty clear. If It's one-to-one comparisons. Like sure, you know, React keeps a lot of the web HTML-y kind of syntax, but the structure of the code, the way the way things basically flow, for lack of a better word, is virtually um, virtually the same. There's some weirdness on like interactive controls, like buttons. Um, I, I'm not going to get into like which way I think is better because I'm I'm not a React developer and it would be unfair. I will say that one thing I do like about React's implementation that I'm not thrilled about with the Swift UI is that it's much more explicit, right? So for instance, and this is like, again, a dumb contrived example. Uh, you have you have a button, Wes's button in React Native. Well, you, you just like feed it a, a function, right? A, a op, you know, an object that is a function for the on press. And it's literally on press equals, you know, buy Wes's sandwich. Swift UI makes that much more magical. Yeah, what do you mean by magical here? Well, so the syntax I, I find a little hard to read, right? And again, this will be linked in, in the docs so you can follow along. The equivalent in React Native is like you, you lay out the button and then in the button HTML tag, you have on press equals this dot on press, right? Is the function he's calling. Great. Love it. Makes sense. The Swift UI version is button open parenthesis action colon um, curly brace. So it's obvious it's a lambda function, right? Like self on press button close curly brace print i know this is terrible another open curly brace and then it defines the text property which is press me like it makes sense but i i find it to be like if i was looking at a, a long view with a bunch of buttons like this sample has which again i get it is 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 contrived um I think a little more window dressing on like just having it not be an anonymous function that you just throw in there would have would make it more readable. Yeah, it is. It is fairly nested, and it's not exactly clear. It's not clear. Yeah, you're right. It's less explicit. And as someone who's only played with Swift a tiny bit and can try to read it, it, it took me a little bit too to interpret. Like, what does this actually mean? Well, it also requires you to understand, right? That so, like the first one in this list here, it's button action. The one I just read out. That action is actually passing, um, I'm going to call it a lambda function, it's just a function, right? 
Um, just which, like an anonymous you know, function. Yeah. Anonymous function. Thank you. Which is, you know, it's calling another function called self on press. But then there's like no X and then it closes the, the declaration, right? With a closed parenthesis. And then it just has another open curly brace that says text press me. Now, that is, this code is laid out correctly. This is the way Xcode would lay this out. So it's not a, it's not a dig on the author at all, uh, which is uh, Rohan Pachel. Uh, I'm sorry, Panchel. It's just confusing because you have to know that this is the way Swift does things. You have to know that that second open curly brace is now basically, for lack of a better term, properties on the button, right? Oh, so you're just adding that as additional stuff that gets applied to the button. Right. Like you could, there's like all views have properties, like the stuff you would think about, Wes, right? Like background color, blah, blah, blah. But oh, yeah, of course. I like even the second example he gives here, where it's the same thing as the first one. But then after you do the text, you also have at the end of the close curly brace dot accent color. And it's, you know, RG being a color. That's, see, to me, that's a pretty, um, ugly syntax basically like i would i would prefer something a little more verbose i guess but i mean that's a nitpick yeah and it's also a little weird too it's kind of hard to tell like what's data versus um, other stuff that's wrapped up here right like even the like the color thing you're passing arguments with numbers and ratios and stuff but it's all inside some constructor yeah and it's also a little weird that like okay so why is accent color dot accent color right why isn't it like just you know accent color in the in the curly braces where the text is all right well then how do you feel about this stuff i mean is it fair to say this is this is gonna be the future uh i heard some about like like um as the as the watch platform is developed more like this is the the way to go for for that direction what what does this mean for the state of development targeting apple's ecosystem Yes, on the Apple side of life, um, Swift UI is, is going to be the future. I think, uh, you know, this is how Apple does things, right? They release the new paradigm. The old paradigm hangs around for a while, but it's, you know, if I, if I was file new projecting something, which I did, um, I, w- I would go to Swift UI as quick as I could. If, you know, you've spent a lot of time talking about Objective C and using it, espousing it here on the show. If you weren't already someone who was sort of playing in, in Swift or, um, you know, had had not really adopted some of the paradigms there, how how much, I'm trying to get a sense, how much of a change is this for just like your standard iOS developer? Well, I, th- I think we can use another um, Objective-C holdout, a Marco Arment, uh, you know, everybody, you know, Marco Inst- Instapaper, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, ATP. Um, he's even switching to Swift and he's been resisting that for quite some time. And I completely agree with him. The writing is on the wall. If you're an iOS developer today and you're clinging to Objective-C and you're not going along with the Swift program, you're, you're going to be in bad shape soon. Um, it is, Swift is the way to go. I mean, it's, I, I still have some things I don't like in the language, some things I don't like about syntax. But if you want to work on this platform, if you want to take advantage of particularly of Swift UI and some of the new stuff on the watch with native interfaces, you don't have a choice. So, yeah, I mean, but I think there's actually a bigger story here, Wes, uh, not just iOS, but the whole concept of reactive components and reactive development. This almost reminds me of a couple years after Rails became big, all of a sudden, like, you know, um, ASP was doing an MVC version, right? And Python had a, a MVC libraries. I'm sorry, MVC frameworks. 
this seems like okay mvvm is is hanging on it's it's trying but um i think reactive programming has won and and i i will concede before people email very very quickly that the reactive style of programming brought to you by swift ui is somewhat less reactive than what you might expect in let's say react native or even how rx swift was but it's um I think we're getting there. I, I wouldn't be surprised in two years if we go even deeper into the reactive concepts. And um, and just like MVC was the pattern that you needed to know in let's say 2008, I think reactive programming, if you're, you know, if you're a young developer and you're just learning, I would urge you to take a look at reactive programming. Now that can get confusing too, right? Because there's, there's sorts of different styles. There's the large RX community and... Um, uh, maybe you would put the Elm architecture in there, data flow stuff. So, but you're right. There's a whole class of technologies that uh, has changed the way we view things, and especially recently, changed the way we construct user interfaces. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I I'm curious what your thoughts are. Was I would consider like React itself, like uh, the original React from Facebook, as kind of the reference implementation. I know it's an old concept; people are going to write in, but for kind of the modern, um, you know, the the modern. I don't even know family genus species. How would how would you define that? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it did start. I think the the main part. I think of React. Right. Is is you're right. It's the reactive components in that it's less of this two way stateful interaction that you've seen in other um, components and frameworks, and instead your view is just a computed function on whatever data that you have, right? So you can have some data structure, some components that you feed into this layer that then acts basically as a peer function that then computes exactly what you want your page to be laid out. Instead of having all the all this state that sort of wound up and delegated, pushed down into each of the little you know, each of the little leaves on your tree of components that you've wired up, you can just have it flow through and generally in just like a one-way sort of information cascade. I do think it, I mean, it plays nicely with functional programming in general, and I think is a nice a nice toolkit to sort of manage your state a little bit better and understand more of, of how your whole interface composes and works together. But it's a pretty big change, honestly. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm we, we've been talking a lot about iOS. I'm very curious about what this is going to look like in the Mac world going forward. Um, AppKit is old, like, like really old. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, it's going to be a thing. I, I think this is the beginning of a, of a large transition for Apple. I think it is nice though. I mean, clearly they've been paying attention to some of the trends in the industry. Um, obviously they think that developers are going to want to develop in this style, right? Um, so it's, it's nice to see them not staying still. It does make me wonder, how do you feel about the general governance of Swift, you know, um, being developed out in the open, the sort of community, the way it's maintained? Uh, have you looked much into that? You know, I follow it as much as I can. I mean, I'm not really involved in that. Um, I think it's fine. I, I, I don't like the kind of air of to hell with the past, but I get where they're coming from. And, and an example of this from uh, Swift 4, which now we're on to Swift 5, is basically what they did with for loops because they decided not to honor the traditional for loop that you'd have in C, which I get it because in Swift, you probably shouldn't do it that way. Right, it's more of like a for comprehension in Swift, right? Yeah, and they'd rather you use what I used, what they used to call blocks, but are now, you know, lambdas, right? Like, 
um, which I even think they have a different word now that I can't remember. But it's, you know, it, I would say it's calmed down quite a bit. Like it, originally, it definitely had an era of like everything old is bad, and we're going to reinvent the wheel, and we're going to bring all this stuff over from you know, like functional languages. Mm, yeah, so not not a gradual transition, maybe a revolution, and not an evolution. Well, it's it, it's gone through fits and starts, but the reality is like Coco is still an OO framework. Yeah, totally. So, like now with Swift UI, a lot of those things actually I think make a lot more sense and are going to be a lot easier to work with. But you know, this is you have a lot of legacy here, and sometimes, and I'm trying to tread lightly here, but when I read the Swift mailing list, it's like I wish there was less of a. Uh, oh geez i shouldn't say it but less of a um um you know to the barricades rip them out of their houses down with the old in with the new kind of um attitude but the criticism of me which i've gotten in the past would be you just want to keep the advantage that you've been doing this for 12 years right i mean that's there's a cost of that you're gonna have to learn a bunch of stuff whereas you're an established expert as it stands now yeah but it's it's see the thing is like i on the one hand, it is not as different as the people who gripe about it say, nor is it as different as the people who say these differences are going to make all the difference claim. Um, it, it just like, it isn't the case that by switching to these more reactive or functional paradigms, we're not going to have problems, right? Like my, my pet peeve with Swift, we talked about, I think before on the show, is it is a very safe language, but it is obnoxiously so. So whenever I see other people's Swift code and sometimes mine, the way you get around it is you just slam a bunch of exclamation points, which are basically force unwrapping, right? So you turn off the safety. Ah, yes. You, you pull the escape hatch and try to try to go that way because you can't get by the compiler. It's just a little too tight, right? It, like, like It's so weird. Where, where I like it in Rust, because I see Rust as more like a systems language, and I'm like running servers, and I want to crash, and data integrity. And Swift, it's like, okay, this is an iOS app. If it crashes, you know what? Relaunch it. Right. That's interesting because you just might want to be somewhere else on the, the spectrum of like safety and, and proof, right? You want to be like, well, okay, there might be some things here where we can't totally prove that it might not have some weird runtime error or something might happen, but it's worth it to you to just be more, more agile, maybe you want to say, or just be able to move faster, a little looser as you frequently update, change, and develop whatever app you're working on. Yeah, you want to be looser. And like, and I, I tend to do very little in iOS apps. I try to keep them as dumb clients if I can. So there's just like not the opportunities for like data corruption that might exist in a server. Um, also, you know, the art and business, right? Um, there just is a lot more market pressure on price for the front end iOS app side of things. Yeah, right. And as long as it works uh, good enough, it doesn't have to be perfect. Because I mean, it never will be, even if it type checks. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just, you know, when you have to kind of fight with the compiler, you're, you know, I could totally see if you're like Adobe and you're writing something in Swift, you never want it to crash because you don't want customer support. But on the other hand, if you're a dev shop or a consulting shop, you you kind of, not that you want things to crash, but... Oh, I just love it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we love it. It's great. You're in a market where you, like, there are edge cases but then there are like edge cases that like sure in a hypothetical world if Venus is in retrograde and like Cthulhu comes that will happen. But Swift makes you cover all of those cases, right? Which is kind of <laughs> right. Yeah, you do have to you do have to think through that. Um, maybe not something for today's show, but there's an interesting idea of um, 
if you could have more, uh, I guess, like a contract system. I know Racket has one, uh, Clojure has Clojure spec, but being able to have more sort of a la carte safety for those times where you like, and I guess, you know, TypeScript is maybe an example of this too, where you can, sure, you can have it really safe with compiler options, but you can also sort of gradually add types as you want to say like, okay, well, I really need these, you know, this core set to be super locked down. The design is is mostly finished. Here's how I want it to work. And I want extra guarantees that the compiler can help me with. And maybe you have different edges around where you, you know, you don't need those same sorts of guarantees. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's super, I mean, TypeScript is probably the, the best at it outside of more niche languages, but I would like to see that applied more because compilers are awesome. And a lot of this tech is really cool. It's just maybe sometimes you don't need it. So speaking of uh, all kinds of different languages, we've got a bit of an update and change on our seven languages challenge. Isn't that right, Mike? That's right. So because Mike got seduced by Swift UI and couldn't do his homework. You just you just changed your assignment, right? I mean, you still did homework. That's true, actually. That is true. I just ended up doing a bunch of Swift UI. Um, we're going to go to a two-week model, just so we can get a little deeper and not be... Um, so rushed. Yeah, I mean, here I was like, I'm, I'm playing with Kotlin, right? But Kotlin targets all kinds of different things. There's lots of different ways to use it. And I only just started trying to build a little toy Android app with it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little time and see if I can flesh that out a little more. We'll see. We'll see. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's going to let us go deeper. And um, frankly, you know, it's funny. I thought this was going to be my slow season. This WWDC just drowned me. There is a lot going on. Um, so yeah, I think this this makes sense. It'll give us a chance to sort of feature these things a little bit more. And as we're trying languages that are really out of our wheelhouse, I want to have time to actually give them, you know, some of them, they're so different that you need time to sort of soak it in and experience it. And it's not just like something you can review by tr- using a GitHub page and solving a couple academic problems. Yeah. Make sure you subscribe, coder.show slash subscribe. You can find our RSS feed, other ways to follow us on whatever platform you happen to use. That's the easiest way to find out when a new episode of Coder Radio appears in the feeds. And that way you can make sure you're up to date with everything we're doing, the latest programming challenges, all the wacky feedback, and what kind of Mac did Mike buy this week? Or maybe it's not a Mac, maybe it's another Linux machine. You just can't say, and that's why you have to show up here for Coder Radio. There's just there's just no other way to do it. Now, in between, there's tons of other great Jupiter Broadcasting shows you can find at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Make sure you check out User Error. I really enjoyed the most recent episode. And always, when you're short on time, check out Linux Action News. Short, easy, and a great way to stay up with all the stuff happening in the Linux and open source world. You can also, of course, find both Mike and I on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne, and Mike, you're... I'm at Dumanuko. Yes, you are. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. That'll be it. Come back next time, you hear? <laughs>